The Nightingale Pledge, 1893. I solemnly pledge myself before God and in the presence of this assembly to pass my life in purity and to practice my profession faithfully. I will abstain from whatever is deleterious and mischievous and will not take or knowingly administer any harmful drug. I will do all in my power to maintain and elevate the standard of my profession and will hold in confidence all personal matters committed to my keeping and all family affairs coming to my knowledge in the practice of my calling. With loyalty will I endeavor to aid the physician in his work and devote myself to the welfare of those committed to my care. Welcome to this week's episode of First Do No Harm. Some of you may know the oath that you just heard. If so, it's likely that you're a nurse. And if you're a nurse, it is also very likely that during your pinning ceremony, you took that exact same oath. This week, we're going to talk about vaccines against COVID-19. We're going to talk about the couple vaccines that are on the forefront, the research studies, and we're going to get the opinions of myself and another nurse, Sam, to see what we think about it. But Sam's going to start us off by first sharing her journey with COVID-19. Hey, Sam, thank you so much for hopping on this podcast. So you and I met years ago working in an ICU together, right? So you have a a history of being a nurse, a brilliant nurse at that. You're all brilliant nurses, right? You've had a little bit of a history with this whole coronavirus, this hit, a little bit different than I have. What have you dealt with with COVID-19? So I was doing a contract out in Rhode Island in February and March, right as the U.S. had its first cases. Um, I was working close to Providence, Rhode Island. And the second week in March, I traveled back home to Tennessee to see my family. Uh, I traveled through major airports, DC, um, Nashville, and on my way back, I traveled through Nashville and Baltimore. My contract was actually canceled because at the time I was working as PACU nurse in surgical services, and they were canceling all non-emergent surgeries. So when my contract canceled, I then traveled back home driving through Connecticut, New York. Uh, And I stopped on my way through Virginia to pick up my sister to bring her back home with me because she was working remotely and we didn't want her out there all on her own in case she got COVID. So I also went through DC. So I hit them all. And by the time I got home, Uh, The day after I got home, actually, uh, March 22nd, I came down with fever, just not feeling well, felt like a cold, but it turned out to be something more than that. I lost my sense of taste and smell Mm. two days later, and then I watched my oxygen plummet on my little pulse oximeter and struggled to breathe for the next week and a half. So that was the beginning of my COVID journey. You've been one of the unfortunate individuals, which there are many, many of you out there that have suffered kind of like in the long haul of it. So it wasn't just 
a month or a week or maybe even two months. It's It's been a longer time period for you to have the deficits left over from the virus that you contracted, right? Yes. Um, in all honesty, the deficits uh, were worse than the actual infection. The actual infection lasted about two and a half weeks. Then I started feeling better. Uh, I was still fatigued, still had some chest pain, but I was fever free for my three days. Uh, and at that point in time, testing wasn't really available. So they considered that to be symptom and contagious free. So I went on about my life for the next week and a half, two weeks and went back to running errands. I started working out again and I just had this continual fatigue that I could not get over. I thought I would bounce back like a, you would from a normal illness. But like the flu or a cold, right? Yeah, yeah, I did. And, and it did not happen. In fact, when I relapsed at the end of April, it was actually worse than the initial infection. My heart rate, just sitting on the couch, not doing anything, I, my heart rate would be in the 130s, 120s. I had a difficulty breathing. Just sitting still, I would be short of breath and my oxygen levels would be 92, 93. And I wasn't even doing anything at that point in time. And then the brain fog set in. I couldn't remember basic things about healthcare or even really how to fry an egg, which you would yeah. think for a 33-year-old, I had no history of mental health issues, no memory issues. My only medical history was uh, hypothyroidism. And I had a concussion in when I was 22. But other than that, I was a very healthy person. So it was surprising to have that severe of a reaction. And it was very confusing too, because when I went and did a chest x-ray, chest CT, MRI, labs, all that stuff, everything kept coming back as normal, except that there were markers that I had some sort of viral infection going on in my wet blood cell counts and that my inflammation levels, my sedimentation rate and my CRP, um, my C-reactive protein were both abnormally high for someone like myself. By the time I did the chest x-ray and this chest CT, it had been a good month and a half from the initial infection. So there's no way to know whether I had that true double pneumonia or whether it was from the little microclotting that they talk about, mm -hmm. or if it was just from inflammation left by the virus as to what was causing all my symptoms. I also did a full cardiac workup, wore the halter monitor, did the echo, did stress test, did the MRI. And the only thing that came back was that my EF was higher than normal. And they said that that was consistent with someone who either had sleep apnea or hypertension, neither of which I have um, or have any history of. So they said, it, again, that could be consistent with some sort of viral damage and basically come back in a year and see if it's still there. It's been a very long journey because I'm, for so many months, I fell into a group of people that had their bodies hijacked from their normal and no one had any answers. And it was difficult, even as a nurse, I will never forget my primary care provider about two months in, couldn't believe that when I relapsed, my fever came back and I had a fever every single day. Mm -hmm. 
and it was like clockwork. It would start around four o'clock in the evening and it didn't matter if I took Tylenol, Advil, um, uh, naproxen, nothing affected it. The only thing that would make the fever go down is if I put ice packs on myself. And so she asked me to bring my thermometer to my doctor's visit. Really? If my thermometer <laughs> was working. And I was like, you know, in, in PACU, you know, literally what you do, your job is taking vital signs because you have to do it every five to 15 minutes, depending on what's going on with your patient. So I was a little initially insulted and thinking, oh, geez, <laughs> I think I can tell if my thermometer is broken, especially since I have three of them. <laughs> and two, you have the feelings that go along with being febrile. So it's yeah. not like, oh, all of a sudden you see that you have an elevated temperature and, oh, shoot, maybe I don't feel so great. <laughs> so oddly enough, my thermometer was not broken. It was accurate. <laughs> well, that's good. I'm glad you know how to appropriately take a temperature. But it's just really a reflection. And I, and I was pretty lucky in that I having been a nurse for so long, am comfortable telling providers that perhaps they need to reconsider mm -hmm. um, their answers sometimes because just because you don't know something doesn't mean you can pass me off as crazy or not valid. Especially um, with something that's so new. And so yeah. like, I mean, it's a, especially when you were infected, it was a very novel virus. So there's a lot that people don't know. They don't, they were very unaware that there were long-term complications in young, healthy people because you are a very young woman and it doesn't mean that you get to throw it out the window just because you don't know. It means that you should do more research in order for your patients to have the best rehabilitation possible. I feel worse for people that didn't have a background in healthcare because uh, I got online and I found multiple groups that have been put together mostly by actually healthcare providers who were frustrated that no one knew what was going on and were also really afraid of never getting their bodies back to normal. And there were thousands of people just like me and some of them found really great doctors who were able to help them and some of them had really poor experiences. Thankfully, mine ended up, you know, eventually being pretty, pretty good. Overall, it just took the medical community a while to recognize that this is uh, a real thing and an issue because, like you said, no one even thought it was really possible outside of very, very specialized areas of study within infectious disease. It's been a real adventure. It's taken about seven and a half months to get back to normal. And even at normal, yeah, uh, I feel like I there should be, be air careful. quotes around when you say normal. Yeah, because your idea, your 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 perception of normal, in at the end of November is very different of what you would have considered normal in March. That's very true. I am probably about seventy five percent back to what I used to be. So I still have to be very careful not to overexert and to get plenty of rest. I have to be really careful about anything that causes inflammation because that seems to set it off more than anything. But so what type of stuff are you careful with, with inflammation? Like what, what in particular are you? So I'm pretty careful about my diet. I found that I can't eat a lot of processed foods or sugar. Alcohol can be really tricky as well. I also can't over-exercise. 
if I do that, then I have a real setback. But if I don't exercise at all, then I also still have problems. So I have to find that nice balance where I get enough that my body is getting back to normal, but I don't push it too hard that it says, oh, no, 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 we're super exhausted. Now we're going to spend a day in bed. Gotcha. Um, Maybe taking dogs out for a walk or things like that. Yeah, so I've gotten back to where I can take the dogs out and we do about two miles at the little dog park. So <laughs> that's huge, but I can't really like get on my stationary bike and do really intense sweating, more intense cardio or even lifting type exercises. That seems to be a trigger. For some people, it's not though. I mean, and that's the one thing about being a part of so many of these communities is everyone's so different because there are people that got sick in March in these communities that still are running fever to this day Mm. and they can barely function in their normal lives. And I can do things that they can't do. And then there are people that, you know, got well about four months ago and they're back to their normal lives and, you know, almost a hundred percent normal and I'm not. So it really, I think just depends on your body. I have to also take my antihistamines every day, or I have a lot of trouble. So I take a lot of stuff that not a physician. So I don't really, I'm not recommending treatment. This is just, sure, it's just for me. you. I take the Q10 and, you know, turmeric and the fish oil and Oddly enough, I take Pepsid because of the H2 receptor that it helps with, and Zyrtec, uh, trying to think what all, you know, the vitamin C and the zinc and the zinc, yeah, (laughs) magnesium and all that stuff. So thankfully, uh, the only residual issues I'm dealing with currently is still a little brain fog. Uh, I just have trouble remembering like spellings of words sometimes Mm. and it will take me a little longer to recall specific pieces of information that I don't use often. It takes me a little while to like collect all of my words. So I I feel like I don't speak as well as I used to. Uh, So I I don't feel like I could argue you into a corner and say, no, 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 you will (laughs) me (laughs) in order for Tylenol for my patient. (laughs) <laughs> Although I have to say, because I've, I've been with you part of this whole journey that today you are so different than you were even two and three months ago. Like I, I recognize the progress that you've made, even if you don't recognize it as much, you're so much more articulate than, you know, the months after you first contracted the virus. And maybe you can speak to that more so because during that time period, I was so unaware of, I knew there was something wrong, Mm -hmm. but because of the brain fog and the difficulty with the cognition, I was very much unaware of how bad it was. So um, you're welcome to give people a much better idea of the difference you saw from me pre-COVID to the middle of COVID to what I am now. You say that you were unaware, but retrospectively, you may not fully remember the types of conversation that we had because you and I are very good friends. We've been very good Mm -hmm. friends for years. Back then, when all this was first going through, even the progression, you were very quick to cut off conversation that we would be having. I don't know if it was something that Mm -hmm. you were mindful of, that it was just, okay, I'm done. 
with this talk, um, which I, I mean, would get so tired. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Like it wasn't an abrasive type of thing, but like we would talk shortly, but then you could tell that you were very weathered and you were ready to go and things like that. And now, I mean, we could sit on the phone for an hour or two and just talk about life and society and the world and yada, yada, yada. It's, it's such a difference. Thank goodness. Yeah. So I feel like you would be the perfect person. And because you have a desire for no one else in this country to obviously not die of it, but not have to go through the same amount of suffering that you did, even a partial amount of suffering, because realistically, we want no one to go through any difficulties that they really don't have to go through. So I thought that we could chat a little bit about the two major vaccines that I have been kind of zoned in on that I feel like are making the most progress in this country mm-hmm. against COVID-19. I also wanted to spread the word to you that I opened up an Etsy shop that is full of acrylic paintings that I made. The name of the shop is Hope for Human Kindness. It's all one word. Go check it out. And if you like the work, make sure you share with your friends and let them know about it too. Yeah, I am so excited for those. And as I can get them, if I could, I would get both. Yeah, I've talked to multiple nurses too that are a little hesitant about what it really means to get this COVID vaccine, which is it's understandable because polio, back when that whole vaccine started, all those decades ago, there were complications. But then I feel like we need to remember that the science and medicine and how quickly it has progressed throughout the years and the decades that yeah. even the HPV vaccine, it, it hasn't had these terrible side effects. So the two that I really have focused on is the one that is put out by a pharmaceutical giant, which is known as Pfizer. And there's also another firm that is Moderna. And so Moderna is part of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. So both of these drug makers have moved at record speed, and they're really seeking regulatory clearance for the vaccines in the next coming weeks. I figured we could start off by talking about, like, what exactly is a vaccine? There's a lot of anti-vaxxers, people that just don't really understand what it is. And as you know, we always hate what we don't know because there's a fear part to it. A vaccine, it's something that helps a person build up immunity to a disease that is infectious. It intentionally introduces the body to an inactive form of disease-causing germ or something similar to it. I remember once that I actually took a live virus of the flu. Have you ever taken that version of the flu vaccine? No, I have not. How was that? Was it more intense? Not, I mean, not that I remember, but it was before I had tattoos. It was before I had piercings. So I was a little bit more afraid of needles. And so the live virus with the flu vaccine that year, you had to inhale it up each nostril. I remember they asked me, they're like, do you work with cancer patients? I was like, no, of course not. But I worked in neuro ICU. So yes, I did. And I don't know why I didn't realize it. My fear of these needles just got to me. 
with both of these vaccines, from what I've read, they are not a live virus of COVID. They are the inactive version of it. This is going to stimulate the immune system's production of the antibodies, and it's going to give a protein to the person. So it's going to help prevent the infection when they actually come across the real germ. Uh, when you have something introduced to your body, it may be something that we have to get annually. It's not something that we don't know for sure, but because you can get reinfected with COVID-19, it may be something that we have to get annually. That is true. Um, although they're pretty hopeful that with this new RNA technology, which basically just means that they are able to switch out that protein from whatever uh, disease they're trying to immunize you against, they're able to switch out that protein with a protein of whatever strain of COVID that they're looking to immunize you with. And so that way it will be a lot easier than the ones that we have with the flu that are the older technology where they kind of have to guess at what is going to be an issue and then make up the vaccines. And because if I remember correctly, we go off of what basically Australia experiences in their vaccines mm -hmm. for the, or what, what strain of flu they have. We assume that's what we'll have. I just want to take a second as I always do during podcast, I make sure to go back and review that you have actual factual information from this podcast. And as Sam was talking about how selecting viruses for the seasonal influenza vaccine, I looked it up and of course, not a shocker, she was right. Turns out more than 100 national influenza centers in over 100 countries conduct year round surveillance for influenza. This involves receiving and testing thousands of influenza virus samples from patients. The laboratory send representative viruses to five World Health Organization's collaborating centers for reference and research on the flu. Those places are located in Atlanta, Georgia, which is where the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is, London, United Kingdom, Melbourne, Australia, which is what Sam was saying, Tokyo, Japan, and Beijing, China. Okay, so let's get back to our conversation. Really cool new technology that I'm very, very hopeful that they can start applying to not just COVID, but many other types of illnesses that we can be better protected against. Yeah, definitely. And, and with both of these studies, again, there, there are additional studies that's not just wrapped around Pfizer and not just wrapped around Moderna, even though, as I said, those were the two studies that I've really read the most about and that I have kept up to date with because I feel like they are the most effective from what I've read with their clinical trials. Here's a third one that is coming out of the UK from a company, I believe, called Oxford that is done the traditional way that we would do a normal vaccine. And it's kind of, uh, from what I understand, like a third runner to these that they're hoping with a combination of the three, they can really get fuel, uh, like a full spectrum herd immunity, so to speak. Um, but it's shown to be particularly effective for the elderly population. So they're very hopeful about that. So, I mean, if you're afraid of the new technology, if you wait long enough, there should be a a different type of vaccine out there that's based on the older technology that we've used for the flu 
and other vaccines that you can get, but I believe that it's just finishing up its phase two. So it's still got phase three to go. So it's going to be a while before it comes out. And these two, they've actually been in phase three, the two that I was mentioning. With their efficiency, it's been for Pfizer is 95% effective and they actually require two doses. And then Moderna is 94.5% effective. And that's kind of confusing for people who aren't in the medical field. So I'm going to play a clip from one of the scientists that I personally like to follow, who seems to explain it very well. This is some more really good news for a vaccine for COVID-19. Let's look at what would happen if a vaccine did not work. If it was basically the same as a placebo, you would vaccinate 10 or 20,000 people, give 10 or 20,000 people a placebo, and wait for infections to happen. About half of those infections would happen in the vaccinated group, half would happen in the placebo, basically at random. Let's compare that to the final data from the phase three clinical trial of Pfizer and BioNTech's vaccine. They vaccinated over 43,000 people and then waited for infections to happen. There were 170 total infections. Only eight of those happened in the vaccinated group Group, and 162 happened in the placebo group, meaning the vaccine is over 95% effective at reducing your risk of COVID-19 compared to placebo. Looking below me here, efficacy in adults over 65 was over 94%, which is huge because that's a high risk group for severe COVID-19 complications. There were over 43,000 total participants in the trial, zero serious adverse events observed, but there were some mild to moderate events like fatigue in 3.8% and headache in 2%. Just to reiterate, so we've had 170 people who have had adverse effects to this vaccine. Okay, 170 people out of 43,000. Sounds like a lot, but if you look even deeper into it, only eight of those people who were affected by this were in the vaccine group. That is incredible. And also, when you think you're like, okay, well, eight people who got the vaccine out of 43,000, they did have adverse effects. That could still be bad because we know the reality of this virus. But turns out they only had mild to moderate symptoms. 3.8% of them experienced fatigue and 2% experienced a headache. Those, <laughs> yeah. So like <laughs> those were the issues that the vaccinated people had, the eight yes. people in the group. That's amazing. I mean, because if you would like to get the virus and risk having seven and a half months of fatigue and a headache, uh, feel free, you know, more power to you. Having just a few people have a headache and fatigue is truly amazing. And I would encourage anybody to get the vaccine. When do we think that, uh, according to what's coming out, when do we think that... Um, the FDA is going to approve this and how does all of that work? Uh, what is really this emergency use authorization that they're talking about? Okay, good question. There's a couple pieces to the question that you just asked. You mentioned the emergency use authorization. This comes from the FDA. It is not the same thing as an official approval. So Pfizer was really pushing to have the emergency use authorization, which is totally possible. When there's a public health emergency, like there is now in the middle of a coronavirus pandemic, the FDA can actually authorize previously unapproved medical products to diagnose, treat, or prevent an illness of concern in a timely manner where there are no other approved or available alternatives. So here we are. Obviously, we don't have a vaccine. 
250,000 people are dead right now. Millions of people are infected. It's faster than the standard FDA approval, and that typically takes six to 10 months. But when you have data that proves the safety and effectiveness, and even though we still need more information for the authorization, the FDA, they can use that information to weigh the risk and benefits to push this forward. So does that mean that it will be safe for people like you and I that are frontline healthcare workers to take? Well, from, from the information and the trials that we've received so far, just like I mentioned earlier, it looks like it is a very safe option. We're not having adverse effects and the adverse effects are so minimal for those people who are getting effect, infected post-vaccine. And it, it seems like even if you do get the vaccine, unfortunately, there is the possibility that you can still contract COVID. Anything's possible. Uh, yeah, I believe that they said, I think Pfizer had a couple of people that had contracted it, but they found of the people that had a severe COVID infection, I believe only one was in the Pfizer vaccine group and all the rest were in the placebo group. Is that correct? Mm, I think you're right. Though this looks very exciting, it's not likely to go out to the mass population all at once because it's going to be distributed a little bit differently because we are in the middle of a global pandemic. There's also certain ways that the different vaccines have to be transported. For example, Pfizer needs to be kept extremely cold, minus 70 degrees Celsius, which is colder than winter in Antarctica. So you have to keep this <laughs> vaccine colder than Antarctica. I don't even know how people are going to touch this in order to administer it. A cold room like that after being dressed up in PPE for hours? That doesn't <laughs> sound like a bad idea. Yeah, it may not be horrible. <laughs> Moderna is only about minus 20 degrees Celsius. So that's kind of like the temperature of a regular freezer. So I anticipate that that's going to be one that comes out more into the general population because the handling is not going to be as difficult. I, I agree. I mean, I think that the Pfizer vaccine will probably go to large institutions that have the cooling facility for all of that, or it will have to be distributed to the public by the military through their resources, because most places just don't have that kind of refrigeration. Right. And I did read also that it said that if initial supplies are limited, that they're considering four groups to recommend for early COVID-19 vaccine until there's enough vaccine for everyone. So here's a very important key. If you're excited about the vaccine and you really want to get it, see if you fall into these categories. The first, healthcare personnel. It makes sense. We're dealing with COVID all the time, right? The high risk of exposure. Two are the workers in essential and critical industries. The third group are the people who are at high risk for hospitalization or death from COVID-19 because they have underlying medical conditions, which is a large part of our population. Then the last group, people 65 and older. So how do you feel about healthcare workers being in that very first group, even though a lot of healthcare workers are younger, and healthier than many of the patients that are being cared for 
that are dying from COVID-19. And you have very acute experience in that because you work as a rapid response nurse and you literally are the person who is called to help save their lives and oftentimes, unfortunately, have to be the person that helps the physicians determine end of life. I think that's a really great question. Uh, I'm not used to being on the receiving end of questions, but how do I feel because I am obviously of the younger population, I'm in my mid thirties. I think that it's a great thing because even if you don't work for COVID, if you work with inpatients, and as you said, as a rapid response nurse, I respond to patients who are immunocompromised from cancer. You know, they may have other issues that cause them to be very sick. So for me to be comfortable and to be confident that I'm not going to give, if I'm asymptomatic, that I'm not going to potentially give them a virus, even though I wear the appropriate PPE, even though I wear the mask, there's always a portion and a potential that you can give it to someone else, especially when you're getting in their face to try to talk to them, whenever you're having to jump on their chest to get their heart beating again. So I'm, I'm definitely two thumbs up. I'm all for it because I feel like by doing so, by taking this vaccine, it is going to save lives. Uh, what would you tell other nurses who are questioning whether or not they should take the vaccine for personal reasons? Since you so regularly see the ravages uh, that this virus does to the human body that end a life. I mean, it's one thing when you talk about somebody like me and you're like, oh, well, that's only seven and a half months of your life. You're, you're basically only. back to okay. normal. But, you know, people do say that though, you know, you're, they're like, you're not dead. You know, you lived, you're one of the lucky ones. And in, in some respects that is true. But since you so often see the actual dead from this virus, what would you tell our fellow coworkers in healthcare are reasons to trust in the science and trust in the physicians that have worked so hard to develop this vaccine and take it? Again, I think that that was a multi-part question. So you have a group of people that they don't want to take it because they do have allergies. So that's understandable, right? Like some people can't take a flu vaccine because they have a history of Guillain-Barre or they may have an egg allergy or things like that that would cause them to suffer instead of being able to be a healthy person so that others do not get sick. Okay, with that aside, religious reasons aside, what would I tell people who are hesitant? I'm also hesitant. I'm not excited about putting things in my body that we don't have decades worth of history to look through. But we do have clinical studies. We do have trials. We do have evidence-based practice. And if you work in the medical field as a nurse or as a physician, we know that is what we do everything. Every action that we make as far as caring for patients, it is based on the evidence to know that this is the best choice. And if nurses are concerned, then I encourage them to not just listen to this podcast, not just listen to a physician that they trust, although those are great resources, but to actually go to the study, read through the numbers, see what they come up with, because I am comforted 
after I read through both of the studies to know that this is a very, it's a seemingly safe option. And I would encourage them to do that as they care for other people that could potentially die from from us. I mean, what what kind of heaviness and what kind of weight would that be to a nurse when we genuinely do everything that we can so that patients are not harmed, so that patients are able to return back and rehabilitate to their baseline or as close as possible. But there are times that people are dying because we don't know that we're symptomatic, because we make a very minor error that is unintentional, but we give them something that will take their life away. I just think the potential to save other people is worth the uncomfortable situation, especially when we can dive into the research ourselves and we know how to do it. So what would you tell people that maybe can get behind the science and see that there is there is the possibility of safety and this all looks good, but then you have the people that come along who are also healthcare professionals that are that fall into the group of the anti-vaxxers. Because you and I both have worked with nurses who refuse to get the flu vaccine every year because they just don't believe in it. And instead they prefer to wear the, in the hospital, if you don't get the flu vaccine, you have to wear a mask for the entirety of flu season. If they allow you to do that. A lot of facilities don't allow that anymore. Well, yeah, currently, yes. But (laughs) pre-COVID and the insanity of not having enough masks to go to everyone if you didn't get the flu vaccine, you had to wear a mask if you were doing patient care for your entire shift for the entire flu season. And, and you and I both know nurses that and physicians, other healthcare providers that fall into the anti-vax category. So what would you want to tell them about this vaccine? I feel like if people are really heavy on anti-vaxxing, there's not one piece of knowledge that I'm going to be able to hand down to them that is going to change their mind. But in reality, we are nurses, we are physicians, CNAs, techs, whatever. We got into a field where we take care of others and that we are servants. And at some point, especially right now this year november 2020 it's not about us it's we are in the field of making sure that people get to live to see their kids another day another month another year and it's scary this whole time is scary but if i can do something so that a group of people can live and be with their family longer i'm willing to take the risk it's worth it to me. That's why I got into nursing. Makes sense. And I completely agree. So let me ask you another question. When you think about the risk of taking the virus, what is, is there one particular patient story slash experience that you think of that really motivates you to go ahead and commit and take the vaccine and try to protect other people as best you can? If you would have asked me this a week ago, I would have had a different story. Every single week, I would have a different story for you of whether I'm responding to a rapid on the COVID floor and I see a body pass me in a body bag. Um, That alone is very sobering. 
But most recently, I have a coworker. It has been absolutely heartbreaking to me. But my coworker, her mom lives in a different state and she broke her ankle four weeks ago and she had to go to a rehab facility. And while she's at this rehab facility, she contracted COVID-19 and four days later she died. She contracted this virus at a rehab facility, working with nurses, working with CNAs and physicians. That was her only exposure. And all of the patients prior to going to the rehab facility were tested for COVID prior to admission. So she contracted this virus from a worker and she lost her life. Now my friend is not at work for the next couple of weeks because she's mourning the loss of her mom who was otherwise independent. And that to me, my heart breaking for a very dear friend of mine is enough to make me not want to cause other people to cry over the loss of their parent because of something that I could have done to prevent it. Well, that's a really poignant, very painful, painful illustration of how this virus is affecting people. And I I know from our friendship, you in and of yourself, you've had to really worry about your own mother contracting the virus and actually had to stay away from her because she's gone through chemo and radiation. Uh, And I'm sure that that story really drives home the fear you have of losing her to this virus. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's times where I had to go be with her because my dad wasn't available, but in March she was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, which is oftentimes a death sentence. And I remember crying to her and crying to her dad, my grandfather. I was angry, to be honest. I mean, if we're going to be completely transparent, I was angry because I had to take care of everyone else and I couldn't be there to take care of my mom. And so hard. Yeah. Yeah. And, but you know what? She's still here and I'm thankful for it. And I'm still concerned all the time that, that maybe if someone walks in her house without announcing themselves without a mask on, that it could be the thing to take her out, but it's difficult. And I mean, it, it, it rolls back into, it is our job to take care of people. It is our job to pour ourselves into strangers at the sacrifice of our own comfort. And I think this vaccine is just part of it. And if it's not for us, then maybe we need to maybe look at doing some type of telemedicine as nurses and doctors. And that's okay too. It, it doesn't have to be for everyone, but we do have to think of other people and the people that we're caring for so that they don't die. So will you, will you get this vaccine whenever it becomes available if you can? I will. <laughs> as soon as I can sign up for it, I will. I would much rather risk the very small potential based on the results that are coming from Pfizer and Moderna than I would risk getting that again and losing another seven months of my life. And, and they've found, and this is what I find so interesting, being a part of the many communities online that are the long haulers of Mm -hmm. COVID. So many people 
got infected in February, March, April, whether they were traveling, because these communities also include international uh, individuals, people from the UK, Italy, different parts of Asia. So you get a lot of different stories from people, especially in the US. Obviously, there wasn't really testing available due to uh, a lot of administration issues. So many people got sick with COVID and were diagnosed based on symptoms because there was no other disease that would do that. And that was my case. I had the loss of taste and smell and I went from my oxygen level being 98 to 100% to 92 to 93%. And the only thing that fixed it was laying on my stomach. So I was pretty classic COVID, as classic as, as you can get. And I had the ups, you know, I had the GI symptoms, upset stomach and all that fun stuff. If I recontract COVID, I technically, according to the test, it would be my first uh, contraction of the virus. So I can't technically be classified as being reinfected because there was no initial test to prove that I was infected in the first place. But I couldn't even get a test because I wasn't currently working in the hospital when I got sick. So there are many people in these groups that have the same experience, that they were initially infected, couldn't get tested, but over the last five months, so to speak, they have been reinfected with COVID and tested positive for it. But they're not technically included in the research because they don't have that one official test to start with. So when the research came out about that one guy, I believe it was about a month ago. In Las Vegas. In Las Vegas, yes, that had an initial positive test and then a reinfection test. It was pretty sombering for me, as well as many of the people in the community that I'm in, that they're... Research is showing people reinfected oftentimes have a much more severe reaction to it. Are they falling in line with that? Is it worse this time you around know, for a lot of them? It's it's hard to tell, honestly, because even though these groups do collect data from them to, to give to scientists and physicians to try and help people learn about this virus, there's just not enough out there to really get a clear picture on how many are worse than their initial infection and how many are it's about the same or are not that bad. And, and that's what I'm seeing. I'm seeing a hodgepodge of people saying, oh my God, I'm in the hospital this time and I think I'm going to die. And I'm seeing some people saying, you know, I tested positive again. And basically I just feel like this is a really bad relapse, but you know, it wasn't as bad as the initial infection. So I honestly have no idea where my body would fall in that spectrum. Because obviously there's something in my body that does not do well with this virus. Uh, And it it could be the new research that's coming out about the antibodies for the interferon and all of that. I have no idea because I don't have access to that test Mm -hmm. and has the propensity for having long-term complications from that. So no matter what, I will get the vaccine as soon as I possibly can because I don't want to go through another seven and a half months of wondering if I'll ever get better again. Obviously, from your stance, that's very valid because you've been there before and you know how horrible it is. What would you say to the medical community whenever this becomes something that we push or recommend? Do you think that all nurses and physicians 
should get this? Do you think it should just be for their own safety or how do you see that? So I just in general, in my personal belief system, believe that we all make choices and we all live with the consequences thereby, whether they're good consequences or bad consequences. And there are so many people, even in healthcare, which really blows my mind, that have brought in their personal political beliefs about certain parties that really taint their view on science, which is fine. You know, you are welcome to do that. And honestly, I'm not even going to judge you for it. There's a part of me that would like to, but because we believe in the freedoms of everyone to have their personal beliefs, you know, if you want to do that, more power to you. But I will say this, when I got sick, I also infected at least two people that I know of with this virus. One was my husband and one was my sister. My sister is 25, super healthy. She only had a few bad days and she has been totally fine. My husband did not get as sick as I did initially, which honestly, I put that to the fact that he was already taking a daily antihistamine and he was also on Pepsin every day. So, you know, the science that came out about the whole Pepsid study from China showed that a lot of people that took Pepsid ended up not having as adverse a reaction to it as other people. So that's really the only thing I have that explains why he didn't get as sick as I did. Mm -hmm. Because my husband is also 65, has high blood pressure, isn't as active as he could be. So one of the things I worried about the most when I initially got sick is that I hadn't been as careful as I should have been or could have been. And if he got sick, what if he had a, an adverse outcome, uh, whether that was um, some, we were seeing strokes come out of COVID, we were seeing long-term lung damage, much less death. So if any of that happened, I would have to live with that for the rest of my life, knowing that I had exposed him and gotten him sick. So when he got sick, it became a, I honestly was more worried about him than I was about the fact that I could barely breathe because it would be so hard for me to live knowing that I had adversely affected and harmed someone that I cared about so deeply. And that was still in the beginning before we really knew what was yeah, right and appropriate. Idea. And so, yeah. but I mean, now we do know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we, we know the proper actions yet still as a country, we're not concerned with it. Yeah. And honestly, at that point in time, I didn't wear a mask in my traveling because I knew it that was there was new. a e shortage and they were already saying, you know, like it's only when you intubate or do any sort of aerosolized treatment or procedure that you're really experiencing that contagious component of the virus. So I wanted to help protect my fellow healthcare workers. So I didn't wear a mask. I, I was like, no, we need to donate these to the hospital. We mm -hmm. need to help our fellow coworkers. So what I would tell people is put your politics aside and think about people and think about at the end of your life, when you look back on it, what regrets will you have and what things will you say? I am so grateful I did that because especially in healthcare, especially if you work in critical care, you have seen and held the hand of so many people 
as they've passed on from this life to the next. And you've heard their, their stories, their regrets, their hopes, their fears, and the beauty of their lives. And someday that will be each of us. So take the action now that you know you will not regret in the future. That would be what I would tell you. I think that is so beautiful. And that's something that, to be honest with you, I wish I could take that token and always remember it with all of your day-to-day actions, not just how we navigate through a pandemic, but realistically, how we help to not harm another person in in any capacity, not just taking their life or, or increasing the potential of them suffering while they're alive. That's really beautiful. Thank you so much. It's great. Thanks for having me on here. Yeah, I always love talking to you. And thank you so much too, Sam, for sharing your story because it's not an easy one. And it's to be transparent of all of the suffering because you're not someone who likes to glorify any difficult time that you have. So I really appreciate you, you know, sharing you with us. Well, thanks. If it helps encourage one person, then I am grateful that we did this and that they didn't feel alone for however long they listened to this podcast, because you're definitely not alone out there. We, there is a community of souls that are trying very hard to take care of each other through this pandemic. And to anyone listening to this episode of the podcast, if you have experienced COVID, if you're currently going through it, symptomatic, asymptomatic, and you desire additional resources, reach out to me. I'm going to provide links where you can get in touch with me and I will work with Sam and see, I can share with you some groups maybe that I can find that would be beneficial to you potentially. Or if you just have any questions about updated research, I'll be more than happy to provide it to you because just like she said, we want the best for everyone who's here to continue living and breathing and loving one another as long as we possibly can. As we come to the end of this episode, I just want to throw a disclaimer out there. We are not giving you true medical advice. We are telling you our opinions from our interpretation of the research that we've come across. We are also giving you our passionate feelings about the oath that we've taken and the things that we have had to endure and how that has impacted our decision going forward. I do encourage you to do your own research, double-checked, fact check the things that you hear from this podcast, fact check the things you hear from other sources, media, podcast, news, even elected officials and scientists. Check out the show notes on the information and where we received our information for these vaccines, Moderna and Pfizer. And also remember, the date that this is recording is the week of November 20th. So things change. Science changes. Evidence evolves. So make sure you stay up to date on all the changes that come so that whenever you are given the option of this vaccine, make sure that your decision is well informed from a reputable and credible source. Also, Talk to your doctor to make sure that it is or is not right for you. As always, if you enjoyed this episode, if you learned something, be sure to share it with your friends, your family, 
like it, comment, review on your favorite listening platform. Also going into this week with Thanksgiving. Be sure to stay safe, stay smart, and I'll talk to you soon.